what I would like to address this morning. How do we love and delight and wonder and grow in Christ when, especially when, either due to ourselves or our circumstances, we feel stagnant or struggling in our faith? If you have your Bibles with you, um, please turn to Psalm 13 and join me as we read this text and we pray for the Lord to help us in our understanding. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my lies, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. I will sing to, but I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity and the privilege that we have to be gathered together today. I thank you that we can worship and sing and look at your word and meet with one another. And I pray that during this time that you would give us wisdom and understanding, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that as we look at the scriptures, that we would grow in our love for you. Um, I pray that this time would be an encouragement for your glory and for our good. Amen. So I think, we'll, I, th- I think it's helpful for us to, to know that this psalm, um, these lines here are written by the same David who as a boy defeating the giant Goliath on the battlefield said, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all of the earth may know that there's a God in Israel and all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Now that sounds like something out of Braveheart or Gladiator, right? But... David seems so sure of that outcome when he's meeting Goliath as a boy on the battlefield. But that confidence and that lack of fear seems to be missing from the tone of Psalm 13, doesn't it? There's none of that present. Here, David feels as though the Lord has forgotten him. As though God has hidden his face from this person who was previously described as a man after God's own heart. David believes that now his only source of counsel is himself. And he wonders at how long he will feel overwhelmed by sorrow and by despair. Indeed, how long, O Lord? Now, whenever we're reading the Bible, um, it's, it's really critical for us to know what kind of writing that we're reading when we're looking at historical narrative versus a letter that somebody has written to an individual versus poetry and parables. Knowing what kind of writing we're reading um, gives us a lot of understanding. So the Psalms are a collection of songs. They're prayers, they're written as poems. And often poetical literary devices are employed. There's things like metaphors and simile. That's why in Psalm 42, it says things like, as a deer pants 
for streams of living water so my soul pants for you, O God. We understand what it means to pant, right? Living in Charleston this time of year, we understand what it's like to be hot and sweaty and out of breath and just wanting a cool glass of water. And the psalmist says we're supposed to feel that way about the Lord. That we're supposed to desire the Lord like we do a cool glass of water. Psalm 119 talks about how that the word of God is more valuable than gold and silver, that it's sweeter than honey, that we are to taste and experience the word of the Lord and see that it is good, that it is pleasing, that it is appetizing. We should want more of it. But even though we're looking at a poem here, we see, we see it's broken into six verses. It's clearly, clearly organized into three different sections, two verses apiece. We can tell here that the enemy being discussed by David is no metaphor. David believes that this enemy, who's mentioned multiple times, will vocalize their victory by saying, I have prevailed over him. He'll rejoice over his defeat. And in this instance, David fears a real enemy. He feels a concern for his safety and for his welfare. He's facing literal death and he is worried that he's going to die. So understanding this helps us to a certain extent to be able to sympathize with David's situation. Facing death feels to be an appropriate reason to feel fearful. David is also dealing with the fact that as a teenager, God sent the prophet Samuel to anoint him as the next king of Israel. We fast forward a few years later. David is probably expecting life to look a little bit different than it does now. Instead of experiencing the leisure of being a king, David is living a life on the run. At this point, Saul still sits on the throne and jealous of his successor's rise to fame, Paul has spent an extended period of time trying to kill David. Rather than being in a palace, David hides out in caves. So David in his fear and in his worry and in his despair, he turns to God and he begins to pray. How long will this last? Where are you? God, have you forgotten me? Will you let me die? The first two verses are characterized by this refrain of how long, how long, how long, how long? And then David turns from questioning God's provision to pleading for his intervention. Somewhere between a command and a cry, David desires the Lord to consider and to answer him. To hear his cry for help. If not, David expects for his enemy to prevail. He expects his foes to rejoice in his destruction. He is desperate. But finally, eventually, In verses five and six, we see a shift in David's prayer. He goes from questioning to pleading to what feels like a posture or a stance of confidence in the Lord. And so it's important really for us to note that this happens before God has delivered him from this situation. He's not been made free of his enemy yet. He's still in danger, yet he plans to rely on the Lord despite his circumstances. When I was first coming on staff with Campus Outreach, we were putting together a, uh, a New Year's conference that we did each year with like a thousand college students from uh, different areas. And we were really excited because this year in particular, we were having uh, Matt Chandler to come be our, our, our main speaker for the event. And uh, it was at a time where Matt Chandler was kind of up and coming and he was becoming well known as a gifted pastor and teacher. And we were really looking forward to this event. And not a month before, he had to cancel. He couldn't come anymore. Um, and we felt 
we felt a little disappointed, but then we found out why. See, Matt had woken up on Thanksgiving Day and um, during time with family and festivities, he had a seizure. And he woke up in the hospital and was diagnosed with a brain tumor. The night before he went into surgery, Matt posted a video kind of on behalf of his family and for his church community. And he said he wanted to make a couple things very clear. That God up until that point had been exceedingly generous and kind and good to him. And despite the fact that he did not know how his surgery would turn out or whether or not he would live through it or if this cancer would overtake him or if he would never see his daughter walk down the aisle or his son become the athlete that he never was, that he was gonna say right now before and in the midst of these circumstances that God is still enough and that God is still good. How do you do that? It's amazing. That, that, that facing what seems like imminent death, you can say God is enough and God is good. And David gets there as well. He, despite initial doubts and assuming that God has turned away, he goes from this refrain of how much longer do I have to take this God to some helpful declarations of faith and praise. David remembers that he has trusted in the steadfast love of God and he states that he shall rejoice in the salvation provided by the Lord and that he will sing because God has dealt with him bountifully. David expresses that he has previously trusted in the Lord and that the love of the Lord was steadfast and consistent and unfailing and it did not waver and it did not change and it could be counted on and believed in. It mirrors what Paul says in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates that he shows us his love for us and that while we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us before we loved him. So what cause has David, or us for that matter, to doubt that love now? David plans to rejoice in how the Lord has saved him and will save him. And David will sing to the Lord because he has bountifully, graciously, mercifully, kindly, with wonder, been kind to him. So what does that mean for us today, right now? Many of us here have faced difficulties that often come about through external means or painful relationships or trying circumstances. Doubting in God's goodness. But that also can well up from within. When through our experiences or through our emotions or through a combination of the two, we can find ourselves in a similar situation to David. And instead of remembering God's kindness and his previous grace, we like David go from saying things like the battle is the Lord's to, oh God, how much longer? Will you forget me? This is, this is me more than I care to admit. Um, and it doesn't take much. Like I could, be, I could be stuck in bag traffic and I think, why oh God have you done this to me? Right, and in Mount Pleasant, that's an easy thing to do, especially if you have to interact with Highway 41. Why, oh God, are all these people here? Why are they slowing down my progress? I feel the same thing when I get sick. A couple years ago, I woke up on New Year's Day. My wife thought I was having a seizure because I was convulsing so bad um, from a fever. My teeth were chattering. I could barely walk. I could barely talk. And it took me like four or six weeks to get over this illness. And I thought, is it ever going to be the same again? Well, this is how, this is how life's always going to be. And I wasn't even sick for that long, barely a month. And there's some brothers and sisters who deal with a lifetime of illness. Traffic, sickness, arguing with my spouse, frustrations at work, little things 
give me the opportunity all the time to doubt God's goodness in my life. Often we'll look for comfort elsewhere though, right? We'll run to promises of pleasure and anything that might ease our pain. One of my favorite books that I've read um, this past year is called The Common Rule by Justin Wimmel Early. And the subtitle is Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. And the rules, the applications, the habit that he's talking about in this book are dealing with daily habits, weekly habits, doing more of certain things, doing less of other things. For example, um, having the intentional daily habit of having a meal with somebody else um, or having the intentional weekly habit of curating media down to four hours a week. Um, and like when, when a new season of a show like Stranger Things or something that I like watches, I'm ready to do eight hours in a row. Like it doesn't take much. Um, my wife and I maybe watched four hours with it yesterday and I had to stop because I had to preach this morning, right? It doesn't take a lot to capture my attention and affections. Early was a, a missionary in China before being called to law school and after having graduated from the top of his class and landing a job at the best law firm in town and being married and having kids and seeming like everything was going right in his life, he began to have panic attacks. He started experiencing anxiety and doubt. One of the things that I love about this book is it's extremely honest. Um, it provides refreshing transparency and um, it really encapsulates this feeling of what it's like to search for meaningful um, distraction during felt pain. He says, I often find myself lying in bed and facing the reality that I spent the whole day trying to justify my existence on earth. I lie there and I find the scary reality hanging from the ceiling like a light bulb that won't turn off. Does any of it matter? That's a worrisome thought. And because of it, I want to tune everything out. And that's what many of us do. A drink sounds nice. Two sounds better. Sex sounds good. Porn is easier. A conversation would help, but binging on TV will just let me tune out. Catching up on reading would be restful, but Twitter has some notifications that feel a little bit more urgent. My wife and I should spend some time talking. Talking's hard. There's a podcast of a sermon that everyone said we should listen to and oh, there's an article trending. There are more or less healthy ways to escape, but what I can't escape is the desire to escape. And these escapes from our experiences or from our emotions may feel comforting at first. They may momentarily distract us from what we're dealing with, but we need to understand that they are, they're hollow in substance and they do nothing to actually address our actual problems. Binging on food or drink or Netflix may feel satisfying for a season, but it does not last and it delays the healthy work of turning to God, whether in fear or lack of faith and coming to the realization that in Him, there's true joy and fulfillment and hope. David gets there by the end of Psalm 13 and he provides us with some helpful means of loving the Lord when life is hard or difficult. And the first is to trust particularly in the steadfast love of God. David has previously done so and needed to remember that. And some of us need to as well. In a wonderful little article called When Temptation Holds Out Pleasure, uh, author and artist Jackie Hill Perry expresses the difficulty of trusting and obeying God by saying, what's difficult for me and perhaps for you is that though I'm a new creature, that I'm a new person in Christ, Though I am no longer a slave to loving dead or sinful things, I'm still tempted to believe that at times that they, and not God, 
provide the joy that I want. That obedience to God would kill and not increase my joy. She goes on to say, but oh, the irrationality of temptation. If anything, obedience creates the opportunity for joy. Fleeing sexual immorality sets me free to experience the sustaining power of God. Choosing to forgive instead of being vengeful keeps my heart free from the heaviness of hatred and it fills me up with faith, trusting that God can handle every wrong that's done to me. Casting my cares at the feet of God, the one who has told me that he cares for me, unclutters my mind, clearing the way for the peace that's eluded me. How much more should we? David, with a partial glimpse of redemption, a partial glimpse of the one that was to come to make all things right, versus we who stand on this side of the cross and beholding the glory of the Lord, no veil, are able to see that we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How much more should we, who've seen the full work of redemption played out, how much more should we? When we can remember what it was like to initially trust the goodness of God, and when we can do so again, we create opportunities for renewed joy. Our heart becomes free from the irrationality of sin and we gain a peace in the Lord. And we can remember and we can know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is the gospel that God gave up his life for us so that we might live and be saved. And the gospel is not just the entrance to a life with Christ, but the entire summation of what it means to be a Christian and have a life with Christ. Tim Keller says it's not the ABCs of Christianity, but it's the A to Z of Christianity. We don't just need the gospel to become a Christian, but we need the gospel every single day. We don't graduate from it. We don't mature out. We must remember why and how we have trusted in the steadfast love of the Lord previously, and then we must rejoice. David says that his heart will rejoice in the Lord's salvation. In 1 Peter, it echoes the sentiment of rejoicing in our future salvation and glory by saying of Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. With, with, with expectation and inexpressible joy, we should rejoice in how the Lord will completely bring about reconciliation and restoration and redemption. So what kind of things should we do to help us rejoice? Time spent in the scriptures um, is, is valuable because God's word is true and it does not return void. We as messed up human beings get to pray to an infinite, eternal, and unchanging God who created the heavens and the earth. Time spent with other Christians should be expected because God called us into a relationship with himself and into a, a relationship with other people who can encourage us and help us in our faith. 
But outside of that, you get to be a little creative here. If, if walking on the beach or looking at a beautiful sunset and feeling awe and wonder at God's creation helps stir your affections for him, then do those things. If it's listening to or playing music or if it's journaling or if it's spending time with other believers, continue in those things. Do those things that help you to rejoice. Conversely, we should ask ourselves the question, what robs us of joy? What keeps us from loving Christ as we know we, we can and we should? Is it watching too much TV? Is it staring too much at our phone or some other form of screen? Is it a lack of sleep or lack of exercise or is it a lack of community? Are we living in isolation? We, we should be mindful of those things and understand that our habits matter. Jamie Smith is a philosophy professor at Calvin College and a couple of years ago he wrote a great book called You Are What You Love. And in it, he argues that our, that our wants and our, and our longings are at the core of our identity, the, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. So in other words, what we desire says a lot about who we are. What we celebrate and what we crave communicates the kind of people that we are becoming. He says our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person, and thus the scripture counsels, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart and to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. Discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. To grow in Christ, to ongoingly rejoice in the Lord, we are to develop spiritual appetites and curate the desires of our hearts. Because what we love influences what we do, what we do shapes what we believe. Sanctification or, or growing in Christ is less about learning new information and more about rejoicing and delighting in the one who brings about life transformation. It does not happen by accident, but it is highly intentional. We look ahead and rejoice in the one who has saved us and will save us. Lastly, um, we're to sing with, with words saturated with emotion. We are to express our, our delight in God and how he has dealt with us, not as we deserve, but bountifully. Now, when David says sing here, um, I'm, I'm of the opinion that he actually means to praise him with music and to sing. Despite what uh, Buddy the Elf says, singing is not just like talking. It's not, it's not making words longer and louder while moving your voice up and down. It is laden with feelings and with thoughts and emotion. I'm thankful for um, the melody and the rhythm of songs and what it can provide for me to help zero my attention in and, and focus my affections on the Lord. That's what it does. So we should sing and when we do so, we should do so robustly and affectionately and loudly. That's how we should sing here. And I know, if we could be honest for a moment, I know many of us here aren't comfortable showing our hand when we're singing, right? We're maybe a little self-conscious of how we sound or how we look. Uh, if, uh, you know, we'll come in, maybe hands at the pocket. Um, maybe we'll switch it up, hands behind the back. 
or you can always cross your arms if you're feeling a little more reserved. Um, if, uh, you know, if you don't know what to do with your hands and you're not sure what they should do, maybe you'll just kind of cross them in front of you and you'll stay here kind of in your box, in your safe zone. Everything's fine. But our call is not to, to sound pretty or to look good, but to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Even if you can't carry a tune, it's okay. We're just saying robustly and affectionately and loudly to respond to the Lord. So regardless um, of how much you react to singing, um, whether it is hands up, hands down, hands behind your back, regardless of how much or how little you react, I would encourage you to give yourself permission to react and to respond to the Lord and to feel things when we sing. Because of who he is and how he has loved us. That's why Psalm 63 says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And when we recognize that God's steadfast love is better than life, we praise him with our lips. We bless him as long as we live because um, in your name, we can lift up our hands. It's with joy that we sing. Before we close, um, I'd like to make an, uh, an important distinction, I think, with the struggling sentiment that David puts forth here in this psalm. David, David is hurting and he longs for the Lord to work in his life. In contrast, after David does achieve the throne and becomes king over all of Israel, in other words, when he gets everything that his heart desires, he commits adultery and murder and turns away from the Lord until the prophet Nathan comes to him and calls him out on his sin and calls him into repentance. When David faced difficulty, his initial assumption was that God had forgotten him. When he achieved success and won it for nothing, David was the one who forgot the Lord. Let it not be so with us. Let us not grow so comfortable with what we've achieved in life that we forget the one who provides true comfort in this life. Let us not grow so accustomed with our sins that we no longer grow in Christ. We will never grow so much like Jesus that we stop needing Jesus. So let us continually and increasingly with joy pursue the one whose steadfast love has saved us. Um, I used to live near the old village and uh, despite this, I used to run a little bit. Um, I had to buy a lot of jeans designated as husky growing up. I once had a teacher ask if I ate a lot of Pop-Tarts, but I also, for a period of time, I didn't like that teacher very much, if you could guess. Um, I, uh, I used to enjoy running a little bit, slowing down a little bit. But when I lived near the old village, I would, uh, I would go run through there often, and I would go down McCants Drive, and I would pass that, that cemetery, and it would be on my right, and there was this gravestone that would always catch my eye. And I think I first noticed it because the individual was born on Christmas day and he died on the birthday of my father. And I just, I loved looking at it. It was, it was incredibly simple, but it felt profound to read this. It said, Peter Simmons, master blacksmith, December 25th, 1856, to March 31st, 1955. Born December, 1856. 
died March 1955, almost a century old. When about a month before Peter Simmons was born, James Buchanan was elected the 15th president of the United States. When he died, Dwight D. Eisenhower had not even finished his first term as the 34th president of the United States. When he was around nine years old, the Civil War ended. When he was in his 30s, we saw the turn of the century. He experienced World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, the Korean War. He was born into a world where horses and buggies were the transportation means of the day and saw the invention of cars and planes and heard discussions about men going into outer space before he died. Almost a century of living. I loved reading it though because in just two words, Peter Simmons captions a lifetime. He was a master blacksmith. That's how his life was articulated. And from the research that I've done, he was very good at his craft. He mentored Philip Simmons, who turned Iron Gates into works of art in downtown Charleston and who the schools on Clements Ferry are named after. 99 years experiencing all that he did. And in two words, he captured who he was. And I love it. <laughs> I love it because his calling was clear and he did it well. And every time I would see that gravestone, I would think, what about me? Regardless of how many lives I'm given on this earth, how could my life be articulated? What would be its theme? We as Christians need to understand that we will all experience seasons of depression and difficulties. But those things are to be expected. We live in an imperfect world with imperfect people, chiefly ourselves. And while bad things are normal, what should be more normal for the person who has put their, their, their trust and their faith in Christ is an overwhelming confidence in the goodness of the Lord. That his steadfast love has prevailed and that his mercy and his grace will continue in our lives. We should have an ongoing delight in the Lord and that should characterize and caption our lives. We should be able to summarize our living as people who have trusted in, rejoice in, and will sing to the Lord always, now and forevermore. And it's important for us to understand that as Christians, we're not exempt from suffering. Indeed, we, we, we should be able to expect it. But we don't have to experience any of it alone. We have a great high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, who in every respect was tempted as we are, who is yet without sin. We can draw near to him with confidence. At his throne, we can find mercy and grace that will help us in our time of need. Additionally, if we're willing to see it, if we're willing to take advantage of it, we, we have the opportunity to do life with other believers who are wanting to love Christ more, but who are also experiencing the same sort of failures and frustrations that we do every day. The Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation. God has called us into relationship with himself and into relationship with other people. And we have this community of faith that we can share with and care for and, and, and pray with and um, understand that we grow in Christ in the context of relationships and not outside of it. So my encouragement to you, um, if you do feel like you're a Christian living in isolation is to get connected. 
to, to find someone to speak into your life, whether a mentor or through a community group or a Bible study or one of the various ministries that we have here. Um, Craig Harris loves talking to people if, uh, if you're looking for, for someone to converse with, but so do the rest of the pastors and elders and staff here. Um, you are in a place where people love you and care for you and want to walk with you in your time of need and to lead you to the throne of grace where you can find mercy and grace through Jesus. Now, if any of this information this morning is new to you, if, you've, if you feel like you've been looking in on Christianity from a distance and you're hesitant or you're unsure of what you believe, I would encourage you to consider the opportunity of what a, a life with Christ can yield. The hustle of, of proving yourself can be gone. You no longer have to look for your self-worth and your appearance or your accomplishments or the approval of other people. The attempts at righting your wrongs can end. You, become, you, you can become free of your past mistakes and not marked by them. In him, there is true hope and fulfilling purpose and everlasting joy. Now, for those of you here who, whether recently or what feels like a long time ago, came to see that the Lord was good and you have previously placed your faith and your trust in him, my encouragement to you would be to do not doubt his sovereignty in your life. Remember his, his goodness and the manner in which he has saved you. And if it helps, write out the story of how you became a Christian put it down into words, think through it well, try to think about how God brought you from death to life and darkness to light. We call that a testimony, right? It, it, it is a helpful exercise to work through and think, how has God worked in my life previously? Recall your testimony of faith with joy and thanksgiving. Continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, not reliving the same year of Christianity again and again and again and again. But taking on a posture of humility, Say, I still need the grace of Christ in my life. I still have things to learn about what it means to be a Christian. Don't settle. Never, ever settle. In the struggle against sin or in the process of growing in Christ, continually and increasingly fight to find your joy and your delight in him. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever his Love is steadfast because he is steadfast. God is infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his power, perfection, goodness, glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. God as himself is infinite, eternal, and unchanging, but God in his characteristics and attributes, power, perfection, goodness, glory, wisdom, justice, truth, mercy, grace, is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. Therefore, he is steadfast as God and steadfast in his attributes, particularly his love towards us his affections towards David then and us now are not circumstantial God loved us then before we recognized who he was and what he had done for us through the cross of Christ and God loves us now despite the difficulties we face or the deficiencies that we feel let us be a people who trust rejoice and sing remembering God's goodness to us Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kindness and mercy towards us. I pray that you would not let us forget it, um, but on an increasing basis that you would help us to hunger and to thirst after you, um, to delight in you, to grow in our desire to love and know you more.
I thank you that we can be here this morning, that we can sing with one another and and shake hands and catch up and, and hear from your word. And I pray that it would not be a moment um, that is on its own, but that it would have ramifications for how we live throughout the week. I pray here for the people who, um, who have placed their faith and their trust in you, who identify as Christians, that you, would, um, that you would let them be an encouragement towards one another as the body of Christ, that they would press on um, in their fight for, for joy in you, that as a people gather together, um, that we could lead one another to the throne of grace. And for those here this morning who feel hesitant or unsure, who have um, felt like outsiders looking in, I pray that you would give them um, the boldness to ask a friend or relative who is a Christian, why do you go to church? Why do you call yourself a Christian? Why do you live the way that you live? And I pray that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear, that they would taste and see that you are good, that they would come to realize that in you is life to the fullest. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.